0: Support comes from Austin Water, helping residents reduce water use while protecting Austin's precious resource during the drought conditions with MyATX Water, providing near-real-time water use data, tips, and leak alerts. More at austinwater.org.
1: Missing mail and massive delays in postal delivery sparking action from a Texas congressman. That story and a whole lot more today on The Texas Standard.
0: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.
1: I'm David Brown. Congressman Al Green of the Houston area on frustrations reaching a boiling point with the Postal Service. We'll hear what he plans to do about it. Also, a controversial law to allow Texas law enforcement to make arrests of people suspected of crossing the border illegally. Not all police departments eager to enforce the new law. Concerns about the spread of a disease leads to the euthanization of the entire deer population at a wildlife management area. New testing suggests those deer didn't have to be killed. Those stories and a whole lot more when The Standard gets started. Right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this January 26th. Hope you're having a great Friday. Ever heard this one? Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That's right. Many folks recognize that phrase as the motto of the U.S. Postal Service, although it is not officially. It's actually a passage from the revision of a poem by Charles Eliot called The Letter, a phrase inscribed on the old post office building in New York and a saying that the American public's long associated with the spirit of the USPS and the indefatigable letter carrier. But that poem and that building in New York are more than 100 years old. And much has changed in the business of written communication, and certainly at the Postal Service, too. And a lot of Texans might tell you they're feeling the effects of those changes right now. Delays in mail delivery have sparked complaints from residents across the Houston area over the last few weeks, and this week the U.S. Postal Service sent additional workers to help. The issues apparently stem from changes being implemented at the Missouri City facility, according to a statement by the U.S. Postal Service this week. These are changes that are part of the USPS's Delivering for America plan, which is attempting to modernize the postal system. Here to tell us more about this issue, Congressman Al Green, who represents the 9th District of Texas, including parts of Houston. Congressman Green, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. It's an honor to be on with you and it's an honor to have you. Are you getting an earful from your constituents about these delays? What what are you hearing? I am, and
2: if I may, at the genesis of this conversation, let me say that I am a supporter of USPS. Uh, In Congress, I have voted for tens of billions of dollars for USPS to sustain it. I support the workers there. I believe in this USPS system that we've established in our country. So this is not about them in any way being less than an entity that I would want to see continue to deliver for us, uh, deliver our mail. Uh, USPS uh, has unfortunately not lived up to the standards that it has set for itself. Uh, we have many people who have medicine, persons who have other things that are very important to them that are not getting these things timely and appropriately. Our office has been inundated with uh, complaints. We're approaching 200 complaints now. Uh, we had a Marine. His medicine was delayed, and we went over to the VA to get medicine for him because this medicine could not be found by USPS. It's unbelievable how this is impacting people. And it's bigger than just the Houston area because mail comes in from all around the country mm. and some from out of the country to this center to be processed so that they can get the people in the area.
1: What are you hearing from Postal Service officials about this, and does it all line up um, for you?
2: What I'm hearing is not the real issue when it comes to the, the question of postal delivery. A congressional office should not become the spokesperson for USPS. They have people who are paid good money in their communications department to do this. So there are two issues here. The two issues are one, transparency and communication. They have become what I believe to be a closed society where they are of the opinion that they don't have to have press conferences and explain what's happening to the public mail that is entrusted to them. The other side of it is these delays, as they are explaining to me, are associated with growth, associated with uh, new technology, associated with trying to deliver a better product All of which I support. But what I don't support is when things stack up as they have at that Missouri City Processing Center and when they are not getting things done as they should and their failure to explain to the public what's going on and they put me in the position of having to do it. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, so the Postal Service says that they're hiring additional workers. There are a lot of folks in the Houston area saying, I mean, we've heard stories like uh, uh, haven't even received Christmas packages, uh, for example. What are the next steps here? How, how, would, how are you trying to reassure folks in your district that the mail will, um, will resume and, and they'll start getting those packages and letters?
2: I'm going to tour the plant. They have agreed that I will do this along with my colleague. Uh, Ms. Sylvia Garcia, Congresswoman, and uh, we will tour it at some point in the near future. And after we tour the plant, uh, some decision will be made as to whether or not we believe this is going to be uh, a circumstance that uh, can take care of not only the mail that's coming in currently, but also the mail that will be coming in for this March election. The mail ballots are coming in we want to make sure that those ballots are handled appropriately, so we'll make some decision about it. If we conclude, or I conclude, if that they are move, move forward satisfactorily, then I suppose uh, we will give them the opportunity to do so. But if not, then we may ask for a congressional hearing. I can't guarantee a hearing. I can guarantee that I can ask for it and that we'll give those who are the chairs the appropriate opportunity to respond to the request. So these are a couple of things that we have uh, in store, possibly, and I say possibly because the field hearing is not something that I've decided to do, but I have concluded that a tour of the plants is uh, something that's necessary. That is a south plant in Missouri City, and then there's a north side plant as well.
1: Congressman Al Green represents the ninth District of Texas, including parts of Houston. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. A new Texas law that gives police in Texas the power to arrest people suspected of crossing the border illegally is set to take effect in March, a move seen by many as a direct challenge to the federal government's role on the border. Lawsuits have been filed to prevent the law from taking effect, But as legal fights over that play out, local police departments are thinking about how they would handle this new power. And as Marfa Public Radio's Travis Bubenik tells us, some in the state's Big Bend region say they're not eager to enforce the new law.
3: If y'all just want to go up on Bumville and
4: A Border Patrol agent comes on the radio in Terrell County Sheriff Thaddeus Cleveland's truck as he heads down a rocky desert road, sweeping views of the Rio Grande and Mexico off in the distance. From here, I mean, you you can see 100 miles to the east and 100 miles to the west and 100 miles to the south. Down at the border, Cleveland hops out of his truck and points out what he says is a common place to cross the border. They'll walk down in that canyon and then they'll down along the river, come up and they'll walk up this road at times. Cleveland's a former border patrol agent himself, but his job as sheriff's not that different these days. The majority of what we do ends up being calls for to assist border patrol, to assist a landowner that may have spotted somebody on their, their land. But on this chilly winter day, it's quiet. The only sound, the trickling of the Rio Grande. The Big Bend region sees much fewer migrant encounters, as Customs and Border Protection calls them, In South Texas, where thousands of people have crossed in recent weeks, Cleveland argues the new law is more aimed at those parts of the border. Out here, he says he won't be arresting migrants suspected of crossing the border illegally. What I'll be doing is is no different than what I do now. I mean, if I encounter somebody um, that's crossed our border illegally, then uh, the first thing I'll do will be give Border Patrol a call. The sheriff's not passing on the new law because he disagrees with it. Cleveland's an outspoken critic of the Biden administration's policies on border security and immigration. He regularly talks about it on conservative TV news outlets. But he says his small department just doesn't have the resources to take migrants into custody. Sheriff Ronnie Dotson in neighboring Brewster County echoes that.
3: My problem is, in our area, is we don't have no place to put them.
4: Even though border crossing numbers here are the lowest anywhere on the southwest border, Dodson says it wouldn't take much to stress his department.
3: You know, we could stop one truck and fill the jail up.
4: He says the costs of housing and feeding people arrested under the new border law could quickly add up.
3: I mean, even if we
4: arrest them and put them in jail, uh,
3: most of these folks ain't never going to be able to pay a fine. You know, so I think I worry about the burden
4: it's going to put on these counties. That's also a concern over in Presidio County. We
5: don't have a lot of money. This is the poorest county in Texas. Joe Portillo, the county's top elected official. Once you take someone into custody, it does have a fiscal cost. They need to eat. God forbid one of them needs uh, a doctor. They need, uh, I don't know, medication, but there will be an added cost to the county.
4: To help offset those costs, Texas lawmakers did pass a separate measure allowing local governments to apply for some of the $1.5 billion in new border security money approved last year, but it's not clear how much of that will be available. None of the officials interviewed for this story expressed the same kind of human rights concerns about the new law that critics have highlighted, particularly worries that it could lead to racial profiling. But Fernando Garcia with the El Paso-based advocacy group Border Network for Human Rights says his group is deeply concerned about police being untrained in immigration enforcement.
6: It it is like it's a formula to expect a systemic civil and human rights violations.
4: Back on the banks of the Rio Grande, Terrell County Sheriff Thaddeus Cleveland says plainly he supports the new law and Governor Greg Abbott's border security crackdown as a whole. He's the governor of the state of Texas, and his job is to protect Texans, and I think he's doing that exactly. But as Texas continues to assert more authority over the border than it ever has before, some sheriffs here in this far-flung part of the state say they'll leave the job of immigration enforcement to the feds. In Marfa, I'm Travis Bubinick.
1: And Wells Dunbar is monitoring the talk of Texas online. He's our social media editor. Welcome back, Wells.
7: Hi, David. Good to be back. Well, that showdown on several fronts between the federal and state government over immigration policy, continuing to generate conversation online with Governor Greg Abbott, asserting Texas' rights to militarize the border and curb illegal immigration. As we've also noted this week, the governor said Texas troops would continue to string barbed wire along the border, despite the Supreme Court saying, Federal immigration officials have the right to remove that wire. Other Republican governors are getting behind Abbott, further inflaming what some see as a potential constitutional crisis here. On our Facebook page, Sean Lowry says, The federal government has always had certain responsibilities, including border control, but there's been a move, starting particularly under the Trump administration, to exert state rights. Hopefully, he says, the courts will not be taking us in the direction of becoming the un-United States. Just one reaction we're seeing there, David. I'll be back with more from social media later in the broadcast.
1: Let us hear from you. Look for Texas Standard on your social media platform of choice. Well's back in about 35. There were a lot of concerns about a highly viral disease spreading among deer, and state officials euthanized the population of a major deer preserve. Did they really have to be killed? That and more as The Standard
0: continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Charles Butt Foundation, pursuing a more equitable and prosperous future for all Texans through education and community partnerships. Learn more at charlesbuttfdn.org.
5: Support comes from American Dream Vacations, a full-service RV rental agency helping Texans explore the Lone Star State's varied destinations and offering a rental management program. Information at americandreamvacations.net. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. After multiple
1: high-profile cases of Texas women fleeing the state during crisis pregnancies, the focus of the state's abortion battle has become saving the life of the mother, But Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports Texas continues to fight federal efforts that would save a mother's life if an emergency abortion is deemed medically
8: necessary. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, or EMTALA, is a federal law that requires health providers to perform life-saving care in emergency situations. Sarah Rosenbaum is a professor of health policy at George Washington University.
9: If the emergency department personnel decide that you have an emergency medical condition, they must stabilize you.
8: Since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the banning of abortion in a number of states like Texas, the Biden administration has issued guidance that states IMTALA can require abortions when the mother is in a dire situation and an abortion is necessary to stabilize the patient even in states like Texas, where abortion is illegal.
9: We are talking about emergency department care. And this assertion on the part of Texas and other states that doing anything um, to protect health emergencies somehow opens the door to, you know, abortion on demand in emergency departments is evidence of a gross, gross, gross misunderstanding of Antalya.
8: In Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson's statement when he sued the Biden administration over MTALA, he said, quote, the Biden administration is seeking to transform every emergency room in the country into a walk-in abortion clinic. Rosenbaum disagrees.
9: It's a statement made out of com- complete ignorance over the meaning of EMTALA, uh, and obviously it's a statement made in complete antipathy to women facing very serious health emergencies
8: and claims that Biden wants to force doctors who oppose abortion to perform abortions is also wrong, said Rosenbaum, because there already is a conscience exemption in Imtala. So the notion
9: that these doctor's rights are being violated is also completely wrong.
8: But Texas has won its anti imtala arguments before a federal judge, and earlier this month, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the administration cannot use Imtala to require hospitals in Texas to provide abortions for women whose lives are at risk due to pregnancy, ruling, quote, IMTALA does not mandate medical treatments, let alone abortion care, nor does it preempt Texas law. But this week, the Biden administration announced new actions to strengthen IMTALA by educating the public about their rights to emergency medical care, including emergency abortions. However, Katie Keith... Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Director of the White House Gender Policy Council, said that in Texas, it's difficult because this is all caught up in the courts.
9: This administration has long taken the position that emergency care under that law, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, can include abortion care in some circumstances. And we're defending that interpretation. We've defended that interpretation in Texas, and we're defending it at the Supreme Court right now in a separate case. Um, out of Idaho.
8: The U.S. Supreme Court will hear an Idaho abortion case involving Imtala in April. In San Antonio, I'm David Martin Davies.
0: Support for coverage of business comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to protecting Texas employers by investigating fraud and focusing on preventing abuse of the system. More at texasmutual.com fraud. And you are
1: listening to the Texas Standard. More than a decade ago, Dallas informally agreed to lease city land to a company called Trinity East Energy LLC for drilling. Trinity East paid more than $19 million as part of this agreement, but they never actually got the chance to drill on that land. The oil and gas company sued the city of Dallas and won a $55 million settlement. And this week, Dallas City Council, without discussion, voted in favor of issuing bonds to pay that fine. Here to get us up speed on the history of this case and the city's ultimate decision on how to pay the fine is accountability reporter Nathan Collins from our partner station KERA in North Texas. Nathan, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Can you say a little bit more about how Dallas ended up in this situation in the first place, having to pay out tens of millions of dollars to an oil and natural gas drilling company?
10: Right. So this issue kind of started when the city was facing a, a budgetary shortfall back in the early 2000s. Um, Basically, you know, the city was trying to make up, um, you know, fallen revenue uh, in the budget, and they basically uh, started soliciting for um, impossible oil and, and gas drilling on city-owned land. Trinity basically, you know, took up the offer. They they responded to the solicitation, um, and they started the process and uh, actually leased land from the city um, to start a, a natural gas uh, drilling operation, but... You know, like you said, it it never it never came to fruition. Basically, the city, uh, you know, the city denied these special permits uh, that the wow. company
1: needed before it A- happened. After after they after the the company had already made this commitment to use this land for this very purpose, right? Right. Yeah. And, and also they were given
10: assurances. The company was given assurances by uh, the then, uh, you know, Dallas city manager and city staff. And in fact, there was a, a signed letter uh, that the, the city manager at the time had signed basically saying, you know, yeah, we're going to we're going to get you these permits, these special permits you need to
1: start drilling in the city. So so there was a lawsuit. Uh, the uh, I guess with a formal verdict here wasn't settled uh, before the end. It was a uh, jury award. Fifty five million dollars.
10: Yeah, so basically, it's a it's a final judgment. And basically, the court has ordered that, you know, the, the city uh, has to pay up to $55 million for this final judgment. Um, and that includes um, pre-judgment uh, interest
1: and post-judgment interest as well, while the lawsuit was going on. Well, I suppose there's some finger pointing going on. I, well, At least I would imagine that's happening. Who's to blame for this situation that Dallas found itself in?
10: I'm not sure if there's one solitary person that's to blame, but I think that if you kind of look back at the situation, the the city manager at the time um, probably the blame uh, falls on her just for making you know making this deal for whatever reason for either to you know to fix the budget um, you know for for any reason, but she did
1: make this deal uh, and it and it fell through. So now Dallas is talking about issuing these bonds. When when governments issue bonds to pay for things like fines. That's generally thought of as, uh, well, sloppy financial management. What has been the city of Dallas's response to criticism of the decision to issue the bonds, and what sort of criticism have you been hearing? So, yeah, I mean, I think the the
10: issue about the bond is kind of, um, it's kind of vague. You know, I reached out to the city and didn't get a clear answer necessarily about whether or not taxpayers were going to uh, weigh in on this issue. Um, but the city basically said that, you know, while they're disappointed about the outcome of the lawsuit, they, they say they've um, exhausted every legal avenue and it's basically time uh, to pay the bill. They said cities can choose to pay large judgments from current operating funds or by issuing bonds, uh, which, you know, basically debt uh, for um, spreading the cost out over a long period or a period of time.
1: Will voters get a chance to weigh in?
10: You know, I'm not sure. I think because, um, you know, it's a final judgment and the court has basically ordered the city to pay this, I'm not sure that Dallas voters really have a say one way or another. I think the city, you know, uh, from what I know, the city has to pay this uh, regardless.
1: Uh, We've been speaking with KERA's accountability reporter, Nathan Collins, and we're going to have a link to more of his reporting at TexasStandard.org. Nathan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund. For over 10 years, helping families lock in current tuition rates and required fees at Texas public colleges and universities, excluding medical and dental institutions. texastuitionpromisefund.com.
5: From the Texas newsroom, I'm Matt Thomas. Texas and the Biden administration are in a political standoff over whether Border Patrol agents can access an Eagle Pass park near the border that's blocked off by the state. The Biden administration set a deadline today to allow the agents to access the park near the border at Eagle Pass. But KERA's Tolawani Osibamuob reports state officials are so far refusing.
6: The U.S. Supreme Court gave Border Patrol permission to remove razor wire from a section of the Mexico border, but Texas has so far refused to allow agents into Shelby Park and Eagle Pass to access the area. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said the state will continue blocking agents from entering in most cases. He spoke on the conservative podcast, The Benny Show.
11: We're not
3: letting uh, the Border Patrol in there to process people. They can come in if they need to do some, some emergency process but we're not letting them in there just to let more
9: people in.
6: Paxton also said the state is erecting more concertina wire at the border despite the high court's decision. I'm Toluani Osibamolo in Dallas.
5: A New Hampshire National Guard officer on the Texas-Mexico border has pleaded guilty to assault, sexual harassment, and several other crimes. The Associated Press reports Lieutenant Colonel Mark Patterson, led a battalion assigned to support U.S. Border Patrol in 2022. He was convicted and sentenced to a reprimand by a military judge in San Antonio as part of a plea deal. The Army has not provided details on those actions. State Attorney General Ken Paxton wants a telehealth clinic in Georgia to turn over records on the transgender minors it's treating from Texas. It's the second request Paxton has made from out-of-state clinics that provide services to transgender youth. Officials with Seattle Children's Hospital in Washington state denied a similar request citing privacy concerns. The city of Uvalde is responding to the Department of Justice report on the 2022 Robb Elementary School shooting. Texas Public Radio's Kayla Padilla reports.
12: In a statement, Uvalde city officials say that since the shooting, the police department has been provided with new equipment and that officers have undergone 1,700 hours of combined training. In addition, the city says they've also added or improved more than a dozen training programs with local entities, which include the Uvalde CISD Police Department and the Uvalde County Sheriff's Department. The city says the Justice Department is committed to providing law enforcement with additional training. I'm Kayla Padilla in San Antonio.
0: I'm Matt
5: Thomas from the Texas Newsroom.
0: You're listening to statewide news from public radio stations across Texas. This coverage is only possible because of support from listeners like you. You can help sustain and grow Texas news coverage by donating to your local public radio station today.
1: 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. For nearly 50 years, the Kerr Wildlife Management Area in the hill country hosted a herd of white-tailed deer for research. But that ended last November after a deer at the facility tested positive for chronic wasting disease, or CWD. CWD is a neurological disease that's fatal for animals like deer, elk, and moose. It's also contagious. After the one positive test, parks and wildlife officials decided to euthanize the entire herd at the Kerr County facility. But late last week, officials sent out another update, one that caused a big stir in the deer world. The Texas Standard's Michael Marks has more.
12: Turns out that deer that tested positive for chronic wasting disease may not have had it after all. As part of their normal procedure, Texas Parks and Wildlife, or TPWD, sent a tonsil sample from the deer to the National Veterinary Services Laboratories in Ames, Iowa. That lab has the final word on the presence of the disease, and in this case, they did not confirm the positive result, which was shocking to a lot of people
11: to this point all 600 and some samples that we've submitted to mbsl the national veterinary lab there in iowa for confirmation have been confirmed so it's it's an extremely rare occurrence for us to not receive confirmation
12: that is john slavsky wildlife division director for tpwd he says an earlier confirmation test had agreed that the deer was infected The
11: opinion of Wisconsin and Texas labs was that the the results were weak, positive, but convincing. And then when Iowa National Veterinary Science Lab looked at it, they observed that staining was present, but they didn't believe it to be truly positive.
12: These tests don't necessarily give yes or no results. Sometimes it's more shades of gray. The sample from the Kerr County deer showed some amount of the proteins that caused the disease. Whether that meant the deer had full-blown chronic wasting disease came down to a difference of opinion between the two labs. What was clear is that the disease had not spread through the 70 other deer in the herd. The National Lab analyzed samples from all the Kerr research deer, and none of them came back positive. But Texas Parks and Wildlife officials didn't know this when they decided to euthanize the whole herd. They made that decision before they'd heard back from the national lab. So why didn't they wait? Solovsky said they wanted to eliminate any possible spread whatsoever, and they wanted to set a good example.
11: You know, being that these were they're our facility and our intent to be a little bit more proactive in this process and and hold ourselves to a higher standard than we may uh, on a deer breeder was part of the decision-making process.
12: Deer breeders who raise whitetails for trophy hunts are among those most affected by how the state manages CWD. They've long been critical of TPWD's regulations, including in some instances, a requirement to euthanize their entire herd after a positive test. The agency's commissioners had a meeting in Austin on Thursday, in part to discuss new rules for CWD. Several people took the opportunity to speak out about the deer in Kerr County. This is Billy Immig, followed by Wendy Schmidt.
11: Texas Parks and Wildlife has employed one mission when faced with the possibility of CWD, no matter how low the risk might be. That is to kill, kill, and kill.
9: As a proud Texan, the decision made to destroy 50 plus years of research was embarrassing. Someone from Texas Parks and Wildlife jumped the gun and slaughtered the healthy white-tailed deer before confirmation of a negative test result was received. We Texans own those deer, and our tax money provided the millions of dollars supporting that facility.
12: Outside the hearing, Jody Phillips said she thought the commissioners were at least listening to their concerns and making headway. Phillips raises whitetails in East Texas and is president of the Texas Deer Association, which represents deer breeders. How TPWD handled the positive result at the Kerr facility gives her concerns about the state's ability to manage the disease, however.
10: That decision was made off of assumptions and not fact, and the people who made those decisions are the same people who are calling the shots for all the deer breeders in the state of Texas.
12: But John Solovsky, the wildlife head for TPWD, stands by the decision to euthanize the Kerr whitetails. Environmental samples from the soil and feeding areas where the deer lived came back positive for the proteins that caused the disease. Those results haven't been consistent, but he says they'll keep testing. I'm Michael Marks for The Texas Standard.
0: Support for Texas Standard comes from the TCU Neely School of Business, hosting the Venture 101 Workshop for anyone interested in venture capital investing. February 2nd. Details at TCU.edu slash Venture 101.
3: Listening to the Texas Standard, and my name is Jason Newlander, and I'm the director of the feature film Fugitive Dreams. Fugitive Dreams is a narrative feature film that tells the story of John and Mary, who are two homeless drifters making their way through a kind of surreal dreamscape of middle America. And we watch them as they struggle to survive, but also as they learn their own capacities for grace, compassion, forgiveness, and love.
9: When I jumped from the train, time stopped. Everything was over,
11: finally. Except it wasn't over. Well, I met the
3: playwright Carrie Dodds Fitch at a playwriting retreat in Los Angeles, I just was in tears at the end of it. I I was just so moved by this script. And it seemed at that time to be incredibly relevant. So I decided to produce it and end up being one of the very best um, shows that I ever directed with that theater company. And so when I started thinking about doing my first feature film, I realized I could imagine it being adapted into an actual road movie, maybe quite easily. The kind of films that get me excited, ask questions, but don't necessarily provide answers. You know, I love when a film makes me feel and think you know, for days or weeks or even years after. And so for my film, my hope is that it will have a similar kind of impact on people and the issues that we're addressing, this sense of loneliness, but that we're not alone in our loneliness. I'm Jason Newlander. I'm the director of the film Future of Dreams. And thanks for listening to The Texas Standard.
1: Jason Newlander is an Austin based author and filmmaker. His movie Fugitive Dreams was filmed entirely in Texas with a Texas based crew. It's now available on several streaming platforms. You can learn more at texasstandard.org. If a Texas public school gets an F in the state's accountability system for several years, there can be major consequences. That includes the school and district being subject to a takeover from the Texas Education Agency. To turn that grade around, a school district has a couple of choices. Partner with a charter school to manage the campus or work to raise that grade on its own. Becky Fogle of KUT in Austin reports on how one school in the central Texas city of Manor is working to change its grade.
13: It's lunchtime at Maynard Middle School, and students fill the cafeteria. Looking around the room, there are signs posted to the walls with encouraging words. And right outside, in the main hallway, is a banner that reads, We Believe in You. And apologies for the corny transition, but one person who definitely believes in this school is Marcus Jones. When he became the principal of Maynard Middle in 2019... The campus was in a tough position. At that point, the Texas Education Agency had given the middle school an F rating for the last few years.
14: I would just say that having an F, it kind of, um, it puts a black eye on the community because when the community hears, all they hear is Maynard Middle School F, Manor Middle School F, 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 F. F.
13: But the consequences of a failing grade go beyond local perception. It can lead to state intervention. If a school district has a campus that receives an F for five years in a row, the TEA can replace the superintendent and the school board with its own appointees. This situation
9: might sound a little familiar, We begin with the anticipated state takeover of the Houston Independent School District. The Texas Education Agency is officially stepping
8: in.
15: And several elected officials and school staff members and students are vowing to fight the TEA takeover of the state's largest school district.
8: We begin with the official takeover
12: of the district by the TEA.
13: Maynard ISD had another option, though, to prevent this type of state intervention. The district could partner with a charter school to operate the failing campus. But to stop any of this from happening, the district began working on a way to raise Maynard Middles' grade. One big piece of that was improving the campus climate. That's where Restorative Justice Coordinator Dion Mays comes in.
6: Restorative, to me, starts with building relationships. You knowing who your students are, you knowing who your staff is, um, and making sure that, or even trying to make sure that everyone is having a great day. Mays
13: came up with ways to infuse fun into the school day and make kids feel valued. On Fridays, we're playing games. We have lunch pep rallies just because. She also saw a need to allow teachers to focus on teaching as much as possible. So the school rolled out a plan where students manage different parts of the classroom.
6: They're in charge of bathroom passes. They're in charge of helping with attendance, passing out technology, even peer tutoring. They're completing their work early so they can earn that position as a peer tutor. That alone has taken 10, 15 minutes off of
13: a teacher where they can just literally
6: stand there and give quality instruction.
13: Another key part of the plan was recruiting and retaining teachers. Here's Principal Jones again.
14: We spend a lot of time getting people here who have the same vision that, that I have. People who care about social justice, people who are able to reflect on their own biases and reflect how their position and station in the world impacts the way that they see others, other people.
13: Maynard Middle School is a Title I campus, which means it has a high percentage of students from low-income households. In general, it can be harder to retain staff at Title I schools, especially one with a failing grade. So the district decided to offer higher retention bonuses to keep teachers at that campus. Robert Sormani is the Maynard ISD superintendent.
3: And that was some $350,000 on top of what would normally be spent on the school that was given.
13: English teacher Erica Hoffman says retention is good for morale.
14: We have a strong group of staff that have returned every year, and there are very like core people in each subject area that I think are really important. And so we, because we see each other coming back every year, and we've had a consistent leadership team with Dr. Jones, um, we've
13: built our relationship just as a staff. The resources and time that Maynard Middle and district staff put into improving the campus is starting to pay off. Even though a lawsuit has prevented the TEA from releasing last year's grades, the district has used the state's raw data to figure out that Maynard Middle is going to get a D. Principal Jones says that's an improvement.
14: But that's not our end goal and it's not where I want our community and family to be.
13: While Jones isn't satisfied with that grade, he says finding out that it was high enough to prevent a charter school partnership was a huge relief.
14: It took me a while to process it because um man, it, <coughs> sorry. nah, no, it's just been um now it's just been um, rough the past year. Well, not the past year, the past few months um like really honestly like knowing there might not be another main or Middle School we're going to have to partner Um, You know, sitting in board meetings, principal meetings where we're talking about it all the time. Like, I just put it in my mind that, you know, like, I'm going to do my best and work hard. But, you know, I just got to prepare myself for the future.
13: Mays, the restorative justice coordinator, says even though there were a lot of naysayers, she knew they could pull it off. Also, it did make me super happy because now I know we have more years to
6: fight, more years to improve with these kids, more years to show them, like, we can do this. We can keep doing it.
13: While the district is out of the woods for now, Maynard Middle School must earn a C rating from the TEA within the next two school years to completely avoid partnering with a charter school. But Superintendent Sormani says, ultimately, avoiding the charter isn't the point.
3: The point is is academic achievement and getting the the campus to be self-sustaining in its growth and academic progress.
13: And he thinks they're
0: on the right track. I'm Becky Fogel in Maynard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, helping patients understand how personal and family history can increase the risk of developing gynecological cancers, such as ovarian, cervical, and endometrial or uterine. More at texasoncology.com. This is
12: Sean Petrie with the Typewriter Rodeo, and we are a group of friends who type poems on the spot on whatever topics people want. Is it Friday yet? The client is texting again. Did you file the brief? Did we win? I hear for other jobs, Fridays bring a grin. But for lawyers, the week never ends.
8: Is it Friday yet? 60 students, 60 essays to grade, 60 minds to teach, and it's barely 8am. The weekend won't come fast enough, but Monday always sneaks up like a monster with claws is it Friday
12: yet? Each day I drive to work, I wonder, would anyone care if
4: I kept driving, got on the highway, flew down the coast, and never came back? Each day, it takes everything in me to talk myself out of it and turn into the
12: lot.
0: I'm Rebecca Bentheim with Typewriter Rodeo, and you're listening to The Texas Standard.
12: Typewriter
1: Rodeo airs each Friday here on The Standard, and you can listen any old time wherever you get your podcast. Friday also means it's time for the week that was in Texas politics. Joining us once more, Matthew Watkins, managing editor for news and politics at the Texas Tribune. Matthew, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. So a Republican state senator who voted to acquit Attorney General Ken Paxton has now asked the Texas Senate to consider opening impeachment proceedings. Who is this senator and what did he have to say? So this is
15: Drew Springer. He is one of the 16 no votes and the closest votes um, of impeachment from the trial last summer. And he basically said that after Ken Paxton said in court recently that he would sort of not contest the whistleblower lawsuit against him involving the allegations of corruption, that the Senate should reopen these proceedings. Basically, Paxton is saying, you know, he would accept any judgment against him. Uh, in this whistleblower's case, Springer is concerned about this, and asked Dan Patrick, who presides over the Senate, whether there's any way to kind of re-look at the case where they voted to acquit him earlier this, or last year.
1: To say this sounds highly unusual seems like an understatement, no?
15: Right, exactly. Uh, we were kind of talking about is like, is this possible? And the answer was sort of, we don't think so, but there's no precedent for this, right? Um, you know, the the House could, I guess, conceivably impeach him again, but, you know, he has already been acquitted and, you know, you'd have to kind of start this whole process all over again, which, you know, you, we know that Donald Trump has been impeached multiple times, but not on the same kind of, you know, alleged offense. So just a really highly unusual and kind of a stunning letter to see.
1: I want to shift gears to another big story, two Republican megadonors starting a new PAC in the wake of this Defend Texas Liberty scandal. Remind us what that was about.
15: So Defend Texas Liberty was this PAC funded by Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, two billionaires um, from the West Texas area. The leader of that PAC, Jonathan Stickland, a former state rep, um, as you remember, uh, was caught. Meeting with a sort of avowed white supremacist, uh, Nick Fuentes, someone who has spoken openly about his admiration for Hitler, things like that. This, of course, created a big scandal, Um, a lot of uh, pressure on people who received money from that group. The group sort of disbanded. And now Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes have created a new pack. this one called Texans United for Conservative Majority. And they have already started spending money in the primary races this year
1: um any uh, uh is it clear whether or not they're going to make an impact or i mean this is sort of getting into the game a little late no
15: yeah sure i mean you know they gave a hundred thousand dollars to the primary challenger of Dave Thielen. <laughs> they're giving you know big amounts of money wow and that money always has an impact of course the opponents of those challengers are going to point to this and say you know you're getting supported by someone who associates with white supremacists we'll see what that kind of does to the rates
1: not much time left here, but uh, I want to uh, point out that uh, Texas Tribune's reporting federal numbers released this week show more Texans than ever have enrolled in Affordable Care Act health plans. What do those numbers say?
15: That's right. So the uh, the numbers climbed by 37 percent this year, which is the biggest growth basically since you know the Affordable Care Act.
1: Why? Came why? Out. I mean, that's a, I think a lot of people scratching their heads over that one.
15: Yeah, it's a good question. We don't exactly know the answer other than to say that there remains a lot of people who are still, you know, without health care in the state of yeah. Texas. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the demand remains high
1: in Texas. You can check out more on all these stories over at texastribune.org. That's where Matthew Watkins is, managing editor for news and politics. Matthew, thanks so much for the update and have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. And social media editor Wells Dunbar joins us once more as we close out the week. Uh, Wells, what are you hearing from listeners online?
7: Hey, David, good to be with you. Well, you know, I'm heading into the weekend just browsing Reddit over here, looking at uh, the uh, San Antonio subreddit. Some interesting advice here from uh, someone who uh, writes that they're moving from Florida to San Antonio in a few months. Anything I should know before I move? And man, this is quite a uh, top comment here going through a lot of the stuff you'd expect you know, you spell it B-E-X-A-R but it's pronounced bear Uh, there's no Publix (laughs) you're not going to see a Publix grocery store here anywhere, but H-E-B is your go-to I-75 was your main road in Florida, but there's multiple roads in San Antonio. I got 410, the inner loop 1604, the outer loop, I-10 east, west, (laughs) etc, etc. A lot of good information there, uh, really. (laughs) Seeing there on the San Antonio subreddit. Yeah, can you imagine? I guess Florida and Texas, not too far removed, really, if you think about it for too long. Um, But uh, just one of the stories that we're looking at today. Uh, Other folks chiming in about some other things going on this weekend. I believe we talked about this one a little bit earlier. uh, Not today, but yesterday, I believe. Uh, The Democratic U.S. Senate debate going down this weekend. Uh, Norma Mm -hmm. Ariata says that she is excited for that debate hosted by the Texas AFL CIO this Sunday and so that should be an interesting one of course these the uh, Democratic candidates seeking to uh, challenge Ted Cruz in the general election there
1: yeah, it's a, you know, this is, I think a lot of people may not realize, and I've said it a couple of times this week, we're we're closing in on primary day here in Texas. We're now less than 40 days away, and um, uh, yeah. as we reported yesterday, uh, the lack of debates, leaving mm-hmm. a lot of folks looking for, well, uh, ways to make choices and decisions, uh, sort of in... in uh, in limbo, uh, not knowing exactly what mm-hmm. differentiates some of these candidates, we've really seen a decline in, in yeah. um, political debates. I thought that, uh, the the uh, conversation yesterday that we had on that was really fascinating, and it's uh, worth a check out over at TexasStandard.org. Sure
7: is, yeah. So again, yeah, this is a little bit of an uh, the exception to the rule here. Uh, this uh, 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 candidate debate on the Democratic side coming up on Sunday with uh, uh, who who do we have here? Congressman Colin Allred, uh, Senator Roland Gutierrez, and Representative Carl Sherman. So those three folks uh, set to square off. Yeah, the challenger hoping to take on Ted Cruz in the fall. Yeah, it's 2024, man. An election year already. And yeah, we're going to be in the thick of it before we know it, David.
1: Wells Dunbar monitoring the talk of Texas. We're out of time for today's program. You can keep up with the news 24-7. I mentioned that address earlier, Texasstandard.org. Leah Scarpelli is our director. Casey Cheeks, our technical director. Managing editor of The Standard is Gabriel Munoz. Managing producers, Laura Rice. Our executive producers, Rhonda Fanning. I'm David Brown. Have a wonderful
0: weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, Visit Texas
12: If you want to know what's going on in the world, then you need to know what's going on in Texas. Every weekday on The Texas Standard, we bring you stories from across the state that affect what's going on elsewhere. As part of the NPR Network, an independent coalition of public media podcasters, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Marks. Talk to you tomorrow.
0: Do brain games really make me smarter? What is all this screen time doing to my brain? How do I protect my brain as I age? Find the answers to life's most and least pressing questions about your mind with the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.